Sup Freaks, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. An immense pleasure of sitting down with Pete Rizzo. Currently the editor-in-chief at Kraken, but we sat down in this episode to talk about a piece he wrote for Bitcoin Magazine in conjunction... In conjunction? He wrote this piece with Aaron Van Weirdum, the great Aaron Van Weirdum, one of the best technical writers in the Bitcoin space. They decided to dive into the history of Bitcoin, particularly around the P2SH, pay to script hash upgrade that happened in towards the end of 2011, beginning of 2012. Very interesting story, very important, pivotal moment in Bitcoin's history uh, that you guys should understand. Price is going crazy this week. Everybody's got their bull suits on, their moon suits on, space suits, ready to go to the moon. How the hell did we get here? What happened before? We got to this point. What allowed us to get to this point? What decisions were made in the past? Critical decisions, critical conversations and uh, that dictated the philosophy of, of the development of the Bitcoin protocol. So we talked about that. We talked about journalism, podcasting, a bunch of other stuff. Really enjoyed this episode with Peter Rizzo. Uh, very excited that he's able to pursue this type of work. Uh, we talked about that too. He, worked, he was the editor-in-chief at Coindesk for quite a while, uh, pumping out articles every day and now he's able to take a step back and actually focus on some long-term timeless content that he's happy to be working on i'm happy that he's happy that he's able to work on these pieces because i think they're very important this episode is brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking cash app what up hot girl meg welcome to the team texted with her last night when she, when she you come on the cash app team we all get your number so I was talking with the stallion last night. She she gave up a million dollars worth of Bitcoin that may still be going on. Uh, but yeah, she's on the stacking sats bandwagon. And Cash App allows you to stack sats, send sats, receive sats, sell sats if you so please. You can DCA in the sats. They've made sats the standard. They just initiated a Bitcoin boost that lets you get sats back when you use your boost card. Sats are taking over the Cash App. What are sats, you may be asking? You may be new to Bitcoin. The price may have drawn you into this podcast. Welcome welcome sats are known as satoshis and a satoshi satoshi nakamoto is the the founder uh and inventor of bitcoin i guess he's the inventor yeah i guess yeah um but the smallest denomination the smallest unit of a bitcoin is known as a satoshi or a sat there are 100 million sats in one bitcoin you get 100 million sats you have one bitcoin all right now sats are the standard within the cash app like, like i said you could dca in the sats if you want what's dca dollar cost average you can set it and forget it. And by daily, weekly, bi-weekly, you can do that via the Cash App. Uh, on top of that, they have slivers of stonks that you can invest in if you want to. You can buy as little as $1 of a stonk if you're into the stonk market and that type of stuff. Uh, and they're doing great things beyond that. Cash App can be your bank account. Get your uh, paychecks direct deposited into the app. They have account numbers and routing numbers for users. Uh, get your paycheck, stack sats. It's taking over, baby. The cash back, excuse me, the sats back, Bitcoin boost, used it this week, works flawlessly, and it's addicting. That's all I'll say. If you haven't downloaded the cash app yet, make sure you do. And when you do, use the code stackingsats, that's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Woo! 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 Just go to stacking sats. $10 is going to go to Owls across. Stack those sats. Stack those sats. Stack those sats.
Tatosas, Tatosas. Enjoy this episode. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What's up, freaks? Just Ninja launched the record button because we're having a good conversation already. Sitting now with Pete Rizzo. What's Editor on, Kraken? Oh. Is that how I'm introducing you? Uh, yeah, I'm appearing this uh, more as the advisor to Bitcoin Magazine or an advisor to Bitcoin Magazine and a longtime industry journalist and, and writer. Uh, but uh, my day job is at Kraken, uh, the cryptocurrency exchange. So. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking about uh, an email exchange we had over three years ago at this point about mm-hmm. me wanting to work at Coindesk. Uh, a was, young, uh, Marty Bent, fresh-faced, uh, cheeks as rosy as snow from what I can remember. Yes. Find. No, I'm battered. And uh, <laughs> now it's funny. It's uh, It'd be interesting to see what that, that path would be like or even if that path was possible considering my writing style. I, I imagine you'd look just like Frank Shaparo. You'd have a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, you'd, have a, you'd have like a nice lapel going, you'd have, you'd have a number of pocket squares, um, you know, cause you really, when you're on that beat, you can't have much Bitcoin flair. You really gets like ties, socks and pocket squares, you know? Yeah. And you have to, you have to start out some t- tweets with scoop and all, all caps. Right. Uh, right. There's a uh, whole rigmarole to it. Right. Yeah. No, that's what we were just discussing. Am I a journalist? I don't think so. Um, I journal, uh, I definitely journal in the sense that I write every day. Yeah, I think on. so. Yeah, I actually, I, I prefer a more permissive uh, definition of journalism. So uh, one of the things that's kind of come together over the last few months is there is an association of cryptocurrency journalists and researchers that has kind of come together to start talking about these subjects. Um, you know, a loose affiliation of people who otherwise probably wouldn't talk to each other. Um, but, you know, it's uh, it's been fun. And I think one of the interesting things I've tried to advocate for journalism is I think people with audiences who don't consider themselves journalists end up defaulting to considering themselves journalists in some way because you ultimately have a responsibility to an audience, right? And I think journalism, if you can think about it as a mental model for the world, right? It's a it's a tool or a discipline. And why do tools and disciplines evolve? Because usually there's some nugget of utility there um, that perseveres through time. So journalism, if you really want to abstract it, is really about maintaining your contract with the audience, right? So you have an audience. There's some way you maintain that contract with it, right? You set the contract and then you maintain it. And I think you, you know that probably because you've, you know, when deciding guests or uh, deciding topics and questions, you're, you're conscious of that audience. So I think journalism, if you take it like way, way 10,000 foot, foot view, it, it tries to, uh, you know, um, set down a set of tactics and guidelines for what you should, how you should approach a situation like that. It used to be that that was predicated on journalists uh, and media outlets having a monopoly on information publishing and distribution, not so much anymore, but I, I think that the values still apply. And I'm actually encouraged to hear people like, you know, yourself or Peter McCormick or others who like, you know, sort of don't call themselves journalists, but still use journalism tactics. Cause to me that just says, 
like the tactics are still good, right? Um, so whether or not you're defending journalism, um, there's just utility to that mindset and that mindset will likely live on even if media outlets as we know it today change drastically. Yeah, I certainly feel obligated and uh, a sense of responsibility to to be giving the freaks some good information, especially what I cover. But Matt and I talk about this a lot. Like, like you just alluded to, there's a new wave of media coming. It's been coming for quite a while um, due uh-huh. to podcasting and Twitter and uh, personal blogs. But uh, I think what you said, like, uh, obviously I'm not like the pocket square buttoned up journalist. And I think that's actually, I like that. And Matt and I say this a lot, like new wave is people with a bias, but being open with that bias and stating that in the beginning, like Marty's bent. I have the definition of what mm. I believe bent to be my inclination or, or what I think. <laughs> and right. um, just being open with that, that bias, like, Hey, I'm a Bitcoin bull. I believe mm. in this technology and here is Bitcoin information through my lens, what I'm looking at and what I think you may get value from. Mm. Yeah, very cool. Hopefully we can uh, do the audience some, some good stuff today. Yeah. No, I think uh, I think uh, what you're doing right now, digging into Bitcoin history, is extremely important. It was actually the first two episodes of this podcast. I felt huh. the need to uh, start Tales from the Crypt by going back and doing Bitcoin history. So we have Bitcoin history part one and part two. Hmm. Didn't get in-depth with uh, P2SH like you and Aaron Van Weirdham did in uh, this piece for Bitcoin magazine but uh i too am a believer as it seems that you are with this piece and i listened to the noted podcast and it seems like you're gonna be diving into some other historical um stories in the bitcoin world i think it's important to create a historical context for people coming in Uh, and i think the p2sh battle that you just wrote about uh is a very important one filled with characters uh that i've respected throughout the years uh, conflicting with each other would be Luke Dasher, Amir Taki, uh, Greg Maxwell steps in. Obviously, Gavin Anderson's at the center of it. Um, you have people like Russell O'Connor, Thamos makes an appearance. A couple of miners. Uh. It's uh, in, a, in a fight for the, um, I guess, the way Bitcoin has improved moving forward, or this is a precedent to, yeah, to set one a, way. Yeah, I would say that. Um... Yeah, it's kind of touching on a few of the points there. I I think that, um, yeah, I do feel passionately about the Bitcoin history, right? So I was a journalist. Most people associate me with, you know, having been the editor for Coindesk during its formative years, uh, you know, since moved on and, and, and trying to kind of do work, I think that better aligns with, you know, Bitcoin's values, right? Or helping people understand Bitcoin as a, as a movement, um, I think with this story, um, you know, in Bitcoin Magazine, it's, uh, you know, the battle for P2SH, the untold history of the first Bitcoin war. Um, yeah, it really is like in, ter- in, in terms of my own kind of archaeology and looking back, it's kind of the first event in Bitcoin's history where, as you alluded to and all the characters you named, um, you know, the community is big enough and there are a diverse uh, set of participants, like the participant pool is large enough where, you know, this is kind of the first, I would say, serious disagreement where you have you know, if Bitcoin is both a technology and a philosophy, there's, you know, multiple disagreements and like complex disagreements happening at each of those levels. Um, whereas I think before in Bitcoin history, if you go back, like the events of this article take place, um, you know, mostly in late 2011 into early 2012, um, there isn't uh, as much back then, right? The, the community is really small and in the stages of coming together. Um, and I would say with P2SH, it's the first 
kind of fork that, well, it is the first fork that happens without Satoshi. It's the first modern soft fork uh, that was activated via minor signaling, which is what we still use today. Um, and yeah, it really marked the division, uh, the beginning of the division amongst the developers who were just kind of coming together to work on a project and their vision for it. Um, and I think in that expression, uh, they found out a lot about what they each thought about Bitcoin, uh, which is something they hadn't discussed uh, before, right? They're just a group of coders working on a project they're passionate about. Um, and here we find that an early disagreement um, just creates a diffusion of ideas, right? And you get to see who thinks what about the Bitcoin software, including some of the people that we revere today uh, from the history. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's Amir Taki pointing out, I think what stuck out to me in the beginning of the article was Amir saying, this is a $20 million network. And like thinking now it's what, 350, above 350 billion. And mm -hmm. even like $20 million was big to that developer community at that given point in time and thank god they had this disagreement right and cared enough about at the time it probably seemed like a large network but looking back that's a drop in the bucket of what bitcoin is today yeah i think that's what's cool about bitcoin though right i think we've seen it over time grow and you know speaking of what you're saying about audience responsibility we also have a responsibility about as, as bitcoiners to do um you know the right thing for the software right um and i think that we're likely living in a time where, where Bitcoin is large enough or becoming large enough where it's not going to be as affected by our personal decisions anymore. I think if you look back at the last 10 years, a lot of the formative battles for Bitcoin have likely been fought. I mean, knock on wood, asterisk, <laughs> in case that in case that comes back. But um, yeah, I think we have a really well-developed idea of what Bitcoin is as a technology and a philosophy. I don't think you could have said that even five or six years ago. Uh, and I do think the effort to preserve these stories is important because as the community grows larger, you know, you deal with this problem of what Greg Maxwell calls social scalability, right? It's like, how do you ensure that the participants within the system all understand it as well and have the same values? And I think what you find if you look back at the Bitcoin history is there are multiple points in time where the community didn't have a strong consensus on its values or a large portion of uh, the community felt or held different values, right? And there was some struggle or uh, events uh, or in this, what, war or whatever you want to call it, where um, those ideologies had to come to a head, right? Ultimately, Bitcoin has to be defined in a certain way. And as much as you want to think about Bitcoin being what you want it to be, um, you know, it has to be a single thing. Um, so I think preserving the stories about the history, the benefit of that is, you know, you get to go back and, and really understand what these people thought, uh, why they thought that way, and ultimately build your own idea of like what Bitcoin's like value proposition is and, and its philosophy. And um, I feel like that for me has been lacking a lot. Like I, I think like from my personal journey to become someone who could even plausibly identify themselves as a Bitcoiner is one that took me a long time. Um, and I think, you know, uh, part of that is just, you know, I joined, uh, I started writing about Bitcoin in 2013, right? Um, we, we have a much different idea of what Bitcoin is today than we, we did back then for sure. And was Bitcoin just a beat for you at that point or were you, were you drawn, <laughs> drawn to it specifically because you had interest due to what was going yeah. on? I mean, I always thought that Bitcoin was a great story, right? So as someone early on, I would say I, I definitely came to Bitcoin as someone who was creative or wanted to be a writer, right? Someone who wanted to, to be professionally creative. I went to school, I got a, uh, 
degree in journalism. Um, I wasn't a working journalist then, and I was able to use uh, Bitcoin as a vehicle to become a journalist, right? So I actually got a job as an editor for uh, a payments news outlet called payments.com. It was out of Boston. Uh, Three-person outlets. So I was the editor there for a newsletter for a few months, rather six months to a year. Um, started freelancing for Coindesk in the middle of 2013 when it was really just starting um, and Bitcoin was really kind of becoming a thing. There was Silk Road, um, you know, there was Mt. Gox, uh, yada, yada, yada. Um, so yeah, I, I, I did my first pieces for Coindesk over the summer of 2013. And by the fall, winter, I was the editor, the U.S. editor of Coindesk, which was this new news source uh, that was covering Bitcoin uh, and the startups that were being on, on, built on top of Bitcoin, right? Um, so yeah, I, I think that if you look back at that period, um, I try to say that there's only so much we could have known about Bitcoin, but I honestly don't know that that's true. I think that there's a certain momentum to the present, like at any given time. And the issue with having like a momentum in the present or a deference to the present is that you see through th that through things you see things through that lens, and you don't think anything else, right? So one of the default assumptions of Coindesk early on was that Coindesk was TechCrunch for Bitcoin, and we were covering the startups being built on Bitcoin, which was the cryptocurrency protocol that was going to succeed because of its network effects, right? That was the Silicon Valley thesis at the time. Bitcoin was a successful. Uh, payment mechanism, this was just what you heard all the time amongst a small group of online users. It had value because it was increasingly being used for payments and goods and services. And Coindesk as a vehicle was very shaped by that ideology that was coming at the time, which is that that was how Bitcoin was going to mainstream, that Bitcoin was a quote, decentralized PayPal uh, or something like that. And, you know, I have often struggled with and I think came later in Bitcoin history to realize that I should have done a much better job on questioning those things that seemed so inherent at the time, right? Because that's really what you do find with the Bitcoin block size wars and, and things like that is you find that a lot of the industry kind of looked before it or left before it looked in terms of doing diligence on Bitcoin. I still wonder if like the big early investors in Bitcoin like really understand it at all. And, and I, I look back and I think that there's there's no real, real way they possibly could. I don't understand how they could do that. <laughs> um, like, uh, I think the, the best we can do is try, right? We can try to continue to understand Bitcoin. Um, at least I think so. I don't know. I, I, I go back and forth on this a lot. I think some people seem to really understand Bitcoin um, innately, maybe. Um, for other people, it's a journey, maybe. And, but for other people, I just, I don't know. Like, hum, we as humans just didn't really understand Bitcoin that well. Yeah, there was, yeah, I completely agree. There was definitely people in the industry, I mean, as the four cores proved, people, in my opinion, misunderstood the nature of the protocol, its limitations, more importantly. And uh, the... I think it took me so long to understand Bitcoin as a software project. I think this is something I was talking to some other journalists about the other day. Um, and I think Aaron Van Wordham, the co-author of this piece, like he was the first one who really, the first journalist who really understood that. He really took the time to realize the front door is GitHub. You can go in the IRC, you can talk to the developers, you can understand their concerns. And that was a lens that no one else had when he had it. Um, I think I've done my best over the years to try to adapt to that lens, but I was very much came of age. And my incentives, like as somebody who was employed by a company, um, was to adapt to the view that they had. And I wouldn't say that that, you know, meant that the information was bad. It was just that it was coming from a certain lens, right? 
Yeah. Um, and look, we may have a lens on Bitcoin today that may in the future also seem the same. And that's the thing that keeps me very skeptical about myself and skeptical about, you know, finding myself in any ideological niche within Bitcoin, right? I think, you know, you can look at the current time period and you can ask yourself, are we over-optimizing the idea that Bitcoin is a quote asset? Like, is it an asset? Like, I mean, it certainly seems like, you know, you can call it that, but it's attached to this economy and the economy and some, uh, in a lot of respects defines the asset, right? Um, is it really a store of value? Well, I mean, it is now, but um, and it is mainstreaming on that definition. But will Bitcoin always be only referred to as a store of value? I don't know, right? So I think um, looking back at that time, and maybe this is like another kind of vote for like why we should maintain the history and kind of keep these learnings around, is that um, I think we're always all sort of in danger of maybe going a bit too far in our efforts to promote Bitcoin um, and defining it too narrowly. Yeah. Yeah, I like to describe it as like we're Bitcoin's revealing itself to us. Like it's like you're, you're on a g- gaming map and as you reach mm. new territories with your hands out, you're discovering where the walls are. And some people throughout Bitcoin's history have had a better idea of what that map looks like. Good examples, Hal Finney, it was a December of 2010, wrote about the Bitcoin bank theory where he just basically described Bitcoin, the protocol level, as a settlement layer and um, you'd build layers to enable medium of exchange and payment systems above it, which seems to be a very prescient um, view of the protocol, in my my opinion. And yeah, then you have others who just completely try to guess at what the dark spots of the map, the limitations are, and it turns out time tells that... The, probably not right but yeah it's it's uh it's interesting like as somebody who's a again bias on the table full on bitcoin bull love the lightning network use it but like you said like is it an asset like i'm using the lightning network as a as a messaging layer right now like Mm -hmm. actually sending text messages on sphinx app um which is an interesting concept i think right I, i think you see this with like the division between bitcoin and ethereum right now and what i keep trying to tell people who asks me ask me about that as i i always say that i don't think that what ethereum is succeeding at the bitcoin has failed that and i don't think that um bitcoin has failed at the things that ethereum has succeeded at i'm not sure if i said that right <laughs> but it's basically like you know i think um in our efforts to describe these technologies we often do a very bad job about describing like what they are right so bitcoin i think is succeeding as a store of value for a lot of people and they're using it as an asset uh, but those terms should not restrict our definition of understanding of Bitcoin. And I think, you know, the maybe the issue with that is if you narrowly define it too much, then people don't kind of, you know, continue to develop it, right? So I guess the question would be like, I asked somebody recently, it was, uh, you know, is Bitcoin a platform? Like we, we call Ethereum a platform because it seems obvious that Ethereum is a platform. People are doing things on top of it and they're launching things on top of it. But Bitcoin is also a platform, right? So I think... Um, Again, there's problems with definitions at this point. I think we're, you know, stepping back fully. It's Bitcoin as an innovation or was an innovation. Um, we as uh, humans like are struggling to understand this because it is so groundbreaking. Um, and then derivatively from that, right, it might take time, right? Um, it took a long time from the discovery of flight for us to be flying planes around. Um, so, uh, and certainly like you can go to museums and they're full of badly designed planes. 
<laughs> you know, right. so, uh, but back to your point about like the people who had a really uh, prescient view, I think the article uh, introduces a couple characters who you can go back today and be and say, wow, like they really had a strong idea of what Bitcoin was. Um, yeah, and, and I, I think, think yeah. I think a segue into the conversation about the article ties neatly to what you just described there. Like Bitcoin uh-huh. uh, has not failed where Ethereum has succeeded uh, necessarily, but it is uh, on that path to potentially enabling that. P2SH, pay to script hash, is a perfect example of that because what does that revolve around? The ability to easily create and send multi-sig transactions, which some would argue is the basically basic building block of a smart contract. Right. Yeah. You know, that Bitcoin has the scripting language and that that's equally important. And I think that's one of the areas of Bitcoin that I'm still trying to understand personally. And I think, you know, the article does a good job of explaining it a little bit, but, um, you know, there's so many concepts to unpack even in this article and just trying to tell the story. Um, but what I was going to say, yeah, I think that the two people who really shine through as having, you know, really pressing views of the network at this early stage would be Thamos and Greg's Ma- Greg Maxwell, uh, both of whom I think have, you know, great quotes uh, in the piece. And I would say, like, the important thing to remember about the quotes in the piece is, you know, Aaron and I actually did go through the IRC logs, the Bitcoin talk logs, the mailing list, right? Like, oftentimes, like, kind of day by day to look for things. And, and some of these quotes, like, they're the only times we can see someone mentioned something like this or, t- or talk like this. Um, and I think what was interesting about both Greg and Thamos is at this time, they still, even at this time when, you know, Bitcoin clients, right? Everybody's running the Bitcoin software. Uh, you now have two Bitcoin clients. You have a, a node that's storing a copy of the blockchain and miners competing for rewards. Um, I think Thamos and Greg Maxwell really understood that, um, you know, it was the nodes within the network that that made those decisions and it, or specifically that it wasn't the miners, right? And you can kind of look at their statements as the early version of figuring out this idea um, because I don't think there was a way to know. And this is what I go back to all the time about, you can talk to, is, is Bitcoin's ideology inherent or was it emergent? And do you care like which one it is, right? I think that there are some people who think Bitcoin's ideology was inherent, that the, uh, version that we have of Bitcoin, the way we believe it is what we always should have believed if we were to understand it correctly. Sorry, I'll, I'll explain that again. I think they think that Bitcoin is inherent, like their values are inherent. They believe that what we think about it now is how you always should have thought about it. So let me break that down and say, I would ask like, if that is true, then like, how is it true that the clients, like the Bitcoin clients split into two different things, like miners and notes? And how could you ever have known what to do about that? So if you really believe that Bitcoin Bitcoin's values are inherent, um, I don't know. It just seems like, well, we know at the beginning that there's no way for that to have been inherent. There was no, there was actually no way to describe there being two different cl- types of clients on the network because no one actually theorized that that would happen. So is Bitcoin ideology emergent, right? Did it become about because things happened and did we, and I, I understand why the idea that Bitcoin ideology is emergent might be, um, somewhat threatening because it invites the idea that like we might have made a choice about something. Um, I actually think that that shouldn't be frightening because we as participants in the system can still make the best choice, right? So if you uh, go back in time and you kind of show that you made the best choice, well, does it matter if it's emergent or not? I don't know. I, I go back and forth on this because I do think that oftentimes the Bitcoin ideology is presented today as if it was always fact. Um, and I always like to point out the the differential between miners and nodes because, well, it was a fact at one point that they were the same thing. 
And that was the vision that Satoshi set out or, you know, what he, she, they wrote in the white paper. Um, so you can draw your own conclusions from that. But, um, you know, my take on that is I think the Bitcoin technological design and philosophy are a bit more emergent. And I don't think that that should be threatening. I don't think that that makes our ideology like less good. Um, it's just a think a more accurate statement of the reality that occurred. Yeah. It's a tough conversation, right? <clears throat> like not tough conversation, but like it's, it's tough, not tough to digest. It's like hard to think through. Cause like there are some things like Genesis block had a very strong message in it. Is that a inherent sort of ide ideology built right into the first block? Potentially, some would argue. Others argue it's just simply a timestamp, a headline to prove something happened at a very specific point in time. Uh, could Satoshi? Well, if it was like five dollars off of Denny's, like you know, right? <laughs> right. I mean, who knows what we, what would have happened? Maybe it would, it would be a food blockchain by now, you know? Right. And we'd we'd take over IBM and and have the food supply chain locked down on the Bitcoin blockchain. But yeah, right. could Satoshi foresee CPUs evolving to GPUs and now ASICs, FPGAs at some point? I've actually found some early evidence that he was aware of that like more earlier than I thought. So I, I was scrubbing the ar archives pretty recently. I haven't gotten a chance to like write this down in any form yet. Um, but it seems that by late 2009, he was aware. So this would have been right as the Bitcoin forums were starting. So you have kind of three discussion forums within Bitcoin. You have Bitcoin list, which is like in 2009, you know, Satoshi just... Uh, kind of has the canonical uh, list that kind of gets dropped off. And then there's the Bitcoin forum, which is what occurred on Bitcoin.org. There was a private chat room, and a lot of that has been ported over to Bitcoin Talk now. Um, but yeah, there's a comment that Satoshi left on the Bitcoin forum where he says to one guy, uh, I can't remember the exact words, but he's like, the guy's essentially saying like, yeah, we should, you know, you can mine with GPUs. Like it'll, we'll just get more, way more rewards. And he was, he says something to the effect of like, oh, we should make a gentleman's agreement, like not to do this yeah, uh, because it's better for the network. And I was like, oh, that's just like a random thing for Satoshi to say, because it's like, okay, well, it suggests to me that he, he was aware that like, so this would have been before GPUs were even around on networks. We went from CPUs to GPUs or is it FPGAs were in the middle or FPGAs are between GPU and ASICs. Okay, so it's uh, CPU, GPU, FPGA, ASICs. Is that our uh, monkeys, yeah. uh, evolutionary monkeys? Yeah, and then I don't know if we'll go. I, I'm too dumb to know if we'll go. I should know this. It's work <laughs> well, for yeah, I mean, he I says, think we're uh, I think the point is that, like, he was aware that it was possible and then was was comfortable deferring to people's uh, personal choice, like that to do the right thing in the network. Um, I just find that that's kind of interesting because I think, you know, that's one of the things we don't know, right? You're sort of left with uh, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin clients as it originally existed, like was supposed to function a certain way. Every member was supposed to run it and, and was, uh, you know, supposed to conduct a certain amount of activities. Right. Um, and that didn't scale. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that was bad. I don't think. Um, I, again, I still think it's possible to to think that we made the best decisions for Bitcoin, and that in the Darwinian evolutionary uh, battle of all these ideas, it's likely the best ones won out. Um, but I think we should want to know that. We should actually want to be able to trace that and and with some accuracy um, make that case, right? Yeah. I think you can you can argue that, or I I would certainly make the argument that. Given that that the client design that Satoshi put forward largely did not work in practice, um, and you were left with two types of clients, 
um, the client that was more easily accessible, like you being a node owner, becoming the dominant decision maker uh, or the check and balance on the other stakeholders in the network made sense because if you had if you had defined the system where miners had the choice and the barrier to entry on being a miner was sufficiently high, then the system wouldn't be sovereign, quote unquote, as we know it today, uh, because you would have been subject to the whims of some other entity who could make decisions on your behalf. So I think if you if you look at it through that lens, like I think the right decision was made. But I think you're left like to look and examine the process of like, well, how did that decision occur and how are decisions getting made within Bitcoin? Because then you're sort of saying that, and I think this is the particular part that people find kind of threatening or scary is that um, we would have to talk about Bitcoin as something that we are participating in and are influencing. Um, and I think that does kind of, you know, I, I, I've been stating it recently as like there's this paradox, right? I think we're going to live in a world where Bitcoin is a system that is so large that we can't possibly change it. Um, it's this uh, store of value that is a mathematical law of the universe, the Michael Saylor uh, definition. But it's also going to be true that at some points people had an outsized impact or decision making or could have impacted like the formation of that thing just because it was too small at that juncture um, to be what it is today. And I don't think that that paradox makes either of those things wrong. It actually might make both those things right. Yeah. So maybe the ideology was inherent from the offset, but the implementation is emergent. Is a way to, <laughs> way to state that, right? Like the, the software implementation. Like if Satoshi had, oh, fuck, after launch. And Satoshi was obviously fallible. Like uh, the beginning of this P2SH article is talking about um, bringing back some opcodes, uh. most of which were previously uh, moonlighted because they turned out to be quasi attacks on the network or attack vectors is a better explanation. Well, yeah, I, th I think what you're talking about is, uh, you know, emergent versus, um, you know, inherent. I think it was inherent that the network design was supposed to be uh, open such that anyone was an equal participant within the network, right? That was. Uh, and it was inherent so was, that Bitcoin was supposed to be an alternative to the banking system. And I think you can act, that's where Satoshi comes in. I'm saying, so those, those are inherent. The hard cap's inherent in my mind. Um, and the concept of one, I you know he says one minor, one vote. Mm -hmm. um, that's what's like sort of... That's okay. It's, I mean... A lot of dog yapping going on, sorry. Yeah. And the, again, like Satoshi was fallible. He obviously... Did, didn't foresee GPU mining till a post-launch. Um, well, that's why I think you have to look at the choice of nodes being sort of given the the within the the technological design and the philosophy, the position that they were given because it aligns with the ideology like better, right? So they, they, yeah. there was a, basically a choice of whether do miners or nodes have the decision, um, and if you gave the decision to miners, well, you can obviously see where that is uh, intellectually contradictive to a lot of earlier stuff. Like the, te the technology would have worked, but as a philo philosophy and a system that had value because it provided a certain thing, it would have broken that. Um, it's a centralized governance structure at that point to an extent. Well, I think that was the argument of a lot of the core developers at the time. And that was, that was kind of the whole legacy of the, fork war period, which, you know, I, I would actually view this P2SH article as, you know, this is kind of the, the prequel, right? This is the, this is where that rift really starts to form. 
Um, and you're starting to see the different characters kind of line up, um, you know, in terms of how they'll later oppose each other. I think it's interesting because it's so early at this point that some of those factions like are not quite set in stone yet, right? You get to see Greg Maxwell reacting to Gavin Andreessen's contribution and being like an awe. It's like, wow, I can't believe that you would have figured out how to do this. Pull out uh, the champagne. Yeah, right. Yeah, you get to see him like, um, you know, be pragmatic, be like, we should move quickly. Like, there's no reason that this can't be done. Like, uh, we all agree on this. Uh, miners are not voting. Users are not voting. Like, we have agreed. You get to see, you know, um, you know, Maxwell sort of advocating for a speed and uh, efficiency to the process that today would be, you know, unorthodox, right? You would never see somebody within the core developer circle, um, you know, speaking in that sort of way. So, to me, I, you know, again, why I find this not threatening and why I think we should engage with it because it is, um, you know, it invites us to consider our, how we've changed over time and whether we've changed in the right ways, right? We can see that people didn't behave that way back then. Um, so I think we have no other choice than to believe that that's how they felt and that they were representing their actions in an authentic way. Um, and that over time, we just evolved the system to be more aligned with our values um, and it was a painful process to do that. Um, and I think, you know, you can see all the splinters within the community that are resulted of that. Um, but, you know, I think we're going to have to at some point, like go back and kind of show some of this work because, you know, I don't know, the alternative is that we might lose a lot of this information about these time periods, right? So, uh, you know, go, going back and look at the fork wars, it's like, what do we know about the New York agreement? What do we know about the Hong Kong agreement? We have to accept that there are these formative events in Bitcoin history that are super opaque. Like we don't have any insight into what the participants did, said, how they represented the system. Um, and do we want to live in a world uh, where that is the case? My argument is that, you know, Bitcoin as a system becomes more valuable the more you can prove that it made the correct decisions and it's designed correctly. And, and instances in that history undermine it, like very obviously undermine it. I think the the lack of transparency about those events um, is confusing. It's weird. It's a strange thing that occurred. Um, but, you know, again, the other part of it is that, um, you know, we are all humans like participating in the system and our views and values will change. Um, the only thing we can do is make sure that they're uh, changing correctly, right? They're doing so with some greater purpose. Yeah. No, in my eyes, it seems like we're going in the right direction, like compared to the battle of P2SH, which was mainly developers until Amir Taki said, hey, we should open this up to users. Users should really be making these decisions at the end of the day. Uh, it shouldn't be minors like describe the scenario for people who haven't read mm. the article yet, right? Like it came down to uh, like we're going to we're going to let the mining pools decide there was like four large mining pools at the time. Um, one of which was a bite ball, um, <laughs> uh, which one, uh, there was one guy who kind of takes a stand and like just refuses to make a decision. <laughs> yeah. I love that guy. Uh, he's a bit, I'm a big fan of him. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah. As you're, as you're pointing out, like, yeah, it is a, uh, you do see governance sort of unfolding in real time to developers who almost don't really understand that you would need governance, right? So what's cool about the article is you get to see these decisions being uh, come to in real time. So the, the way I like to describe the article is, you know, it's about a group of developers who uh, 
want to make a really small change to Bitcoin. They want to make multi-sig addresses, which you know we all use today to, to secure Bitcoin, uh, easier to use because they're twice the size of regular addresses, and that's just inconvenient, right? If you want people to use more secure addresses, you should want smaller addresses, right? So they find a solution to making the addresses smaller, uh, but through Bitcoin being an open network of participants running code, um, everyone has to upgrade, right? Or else you end up with two blockchains unless you design it correctly, right? So now we have to deal with, okay, we have the right solution, but the network has to uh, be upgraded to adapt to it, right? Like, uh, so then we say, okay, how do we upgrade it to the network? Uh, and it turns out, well, hey, there's all these people running Bitcoin's code. Uh, wouldn't it be super easy? Like we just went to these mining pools who, you know, have all these users and just said like, hey, which one do you want to run, right? So you see this sort of, you know, deference to mining pools kind of emerges as a convenience. Like, hey, we've got this great improvement to Bitcoin. Let's, let's get the miners They're the easiest path for us to get this great thing to the users. Let's go to them. Um, and then you see the mining pools say, well, why do you want to set the conditions where we make decisions? You know, if you, Gavin, and you, Luke, don't agree on what the best uh, software upgrade for Bitcoin is, like, why are we somehow making decisions for the network? Um, and then you, you get to deal with the philosophy, uh, you know, the philosophical decisions on top of that, right? So you really just see that Bitcoin being such a complex system, every small little change sets out this chain reaction. And I think with P2SH, I don't think the participants in that system realized that yet. This was kind of the first event where you saw that a very small disagreement can have ripple effects throughout the network. And because the network is well designed uh, or designed in such a way where, you know, the component pieces are, are decentralized, right? Everybody's, you know, Bitcoin market is a, uh, you know, representation of the work of all these, you know, different groups. Um, you know, you really do see that emerge in real time. There was no way for us to know that's how Bitcoin governance worked because no one had tried to do something that was Bitcoin governance, right? Prior to this event, Satoshi made changes and Satoshi was in charge and that was the governance model, right? So what emerges from that is the process that I think we're still trying to understand today. Yes, but I think we're getting better at understanding it. Uh, obviously, we had the Fork Wars, Segwit2x, another battle in which... Um, it was miners versus nodes, right? And it seems that the nodes won out at the end. You had 95% of miners on one side, and yet they weren't able to push that through. And now we have Taproot on the table, and it seems like the miners have conceded they really have no power over this. The developers don't want to make the decision at all. They're literally just proposing, like, hey, if we wanted to activate it, here's this, that, and that way, and then basically abdicating everything to the users to put it in their hands and make it happen. Um, it's beautiful to see how it's evolved. Like, the, especially talking to core devs, like they don't want to put a step forward uh, at this point in time to like be the one to say, "Hey, here's how we're going to change it." Yeah, I think that'll be interesting, right? I I I look at Taproot as, and I can just see all the ways that it's obviously um, kind of just following in the wake of Segwit, right? Um, you kind of see that the reluctance of any, even though most people agree that it's a good change or that seems to be the case, uh, there's a reluctance to move forward um, in pushing it through. Um, and I think there's a desire for, you know, the community to become more vocal about it perhaps and, and for it to get pushed through that way. Um, but we don't know the best way to make decisions on Bitcoin, I think at this point. And um, look, I mean, we may be ultimately in situations in the future where we might have to make decision-making uh, in less, less than ideal ways, right? We might have to go back and understand some of these previous events and understand how things were done. Um, and and in, in the future, we might also be asked in situations to 
do things out of convenience that might not be best for for Bitcoin. And I think, you know, you mentioned the story of the miner in here, Tyco, right? He was one of the top three largest mining pool operators at the time. Um, and what I think is really interesting is the, uh, Gavin and uh, Luke Jr. and their disagreement about what was best for the software, you know, they go to the miners to, to effectively ask them to make the decision. And, and Tycho says, well, I don't think we should, like miners should not decide. Like, why are you asking me? I'm not a tech, I'm not a developer. I'm not deciding for anybody, which is the better choice. Um, and I think that instance invites us all to consider, well, how would you have reacted in that situation? Uh, we saw in subsequent events in history that some people weren't able to kind of look at the apple, so to speak, and and say, no, like I'm going to do something that's aligned with the values of the network. Um, but I do think that is something that we will continue to be asked of with Bitcoin, right? I still think it is a system that, um, you know, not everybody's on the Bitcoin network yet. Right. There's no. about to be a lot more financial institutions <laughs> on board as well, right? We might have, uh, we might not have seen anything yet, right? There, and that's what I like about the P2SH article. There's like a certain like naive, like quaint quality to it where uh, there's one passage that I didn't include where Greg Maxwell kind of like, you know, in frustration, he's just like, he's like, ah, oh, you know, this is, I don't even know why I bother. This is like such a huge disagreement. It's like, I, I can't possibly continue with this. And you're like, boy, I don't like want to tell you what's happening in three years to you, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> like, let me introduce you to Jihan Wu over here. <laughs> right. You know, and then, um, so yeah, you get to look at, you know, history kind of has a lot of lessons that are, you know, they're not, they're, they're a bit more, um, you know, softer, I guess, in their instruction, right? Um, it doesn't say like this is the best way or the only way or it's the one definitive way. But um, I think if you look at these events, I, I think it's it's obvious that like Bitcoin has come to decision making points as a network in its history. It has dealt with them in different ways. Um, and I think hopefully if these events like continue to be preserved, like we can un under get closer to understanding like what, how the system should work and, and, and how we should want it to work. Um, so yeah. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting going forward. It's, like you mentioned, as more and more of these big institutions get in, like will they start funding devs to try to get certain things pushed through? Will they try to use, I mean, they're buying tens of thousands of Bitcoin at the time. Will they try to use that clout um, to direct the, the direction of the protocol development in a certain way? I wouldn't be surprised. I think they'll their efforts will be in vain. I think a lot of the upcoming battles of Bitcoin are, I mean, they're all social, but I think uh, social attacks via the potential bifurcation of the network into a gray market and a white market, if you will. Yeah, I think you've done a lot more uh, pressing research on the on the privacy aspect. I mean, that's certainly something that you know I haven't uh, dug into as much, um, though I am like curious about it, and I do think um, rightly that there are concerns about that. Right? I think that um, if there's uh, if the events of Bitcoin's past show us anything, it's that we need to be distrustful of people uh, who are within Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, not to go back to another character in the story, but I think that's one of the lessons with Gavin Andreessen, right? And I, I like to continue to talk about Gavin Andreessen because he's become such a forgotten, maligned figure in Bitcoin. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, Gavin Andreessen was the successor to Satoshi Nakamoto. He was the person who, who took over the project from him and ostensibly from all the evidence that I can find with his blessing and without any real other replacement who could have possibly been considered for that. Um, you know, and I think he's a story of someone who probably in his mind, like thought he was doing the right thing for Bitcoin, like thought he had the right vision for it. And then, you know, 
came into contact with um, you know, the reality that he didn't. Um, and I think that that story is something that I think everybody should identify with because um, look, Gavin was, you. you know, he was there when there was worth nothing and through his own efforts, um, you know, the network became more valuable. Yeah. I find, I, I've always found it interesting that, uh, he told Satoshi that he was going to meet with the S the CIA, excuse me. And then Satoshi bounced a couple of weeks later. Um, yeah, which... I'm not sure how to read that to be honest. Um, I mean, obviously one of the things that, um, there's a certain connotation to that fact, right. But we don't really know much about that event, right. I yeah, mean, everybody jumps to spook. Yeah, I find that event to be really, uh, not to push myself into saying things that will be like unpopular, but I, I really don't like how that event is portrayed because I think that it's somewhat disingenuous um, that to say that like, we don't we don't actually know. Like, who, how can you surmise the motivations of what Satoshi is? Uh, I mean, certainly we know that he was planning to leave prior, right? Because he hands Gavin the keys to the project at the end of... Uh, the prior year and you know he does spend some time in the early 2011 coordinating that handover with Gavin um, working with Gavin on interviews right Gavin becomes kind of a public face um, for Bitcoin and um, you know maybe it, maybe this is a coincidence that we're reading too much and look equally also I understand people who are saying well you know I I like to say that the uh, Gavin is a CIA agent and there's nothing uh, that you can do to convince me otherwise um, Look, there's a lot of evidence at the time, if you read through the logs, that that was a widely popular decision and that that, um, you know, was supported by a lot of the other core developers. Um, so, you know, I mean, I can't change how you feel about it, but I think that some of these discussions, like based on historical moments, they can have more data and they can be more honest about what the what the um, actual what events they were, right? Um, we yeah. have the transcripts for Gavin's CIA like uh meeting right it's all public you can go see the slides you can read what he said um it's a actually really not opaque event um and yeah i don't know maybe that's another thing to, to kind of pull on um as we kind of go back to this history but um yeah i, I don't know I, I can't say anything more than that of uh i think we should want to like have the facts put together right we live in a time where we can still understand how bitcoin was formed um and that might not be true for people in the future who are coming to bitcoin right um well that is a beautiful part of the network. Like you mentioned, IRC logs open, Bitcoin talk open. You can go back, read through this history, Satoshi's emails, email list open. Why do you think people in the future may not be able to do this? You think this is going to get wiped from the internet if Bitcoin gets too powerful? Or no, as I, just, I think I, I think the illusion here was just to some of the events in the history that we know are important that aren't documented. And I think a lot of the stuff around SegWit in particular, a lot of that took place behind closed doors. A lot of that took place with you know, either small groups of miners having conversations or small groups of businesses having conversations that aren't public. So, excuse me, um, you know, is that good or bad? I mean, yeah, well, it's a lot I remember, of, the, a lot of, the, it's a lot of the thing was lost. So I don't, I remember, well, I actually, maybe for the Hong Kong agreement, you, that was a closed door meeting. Actually, my first bit devs meetup that I ever went to in New York was the first bit devs after the Hong Kong meeting in Rusyanovsky. Is that chain code now? I believe he was in attendance and he gave a presentation on what was said behind those doors. And I actually yeah. have notes in my journal. Oh, really? Um, huh. Describing. <laughs> I will, I'll, I'll, I'll find them and I'll send them to you. But he basically, shorty described Segwit and uh, briefly like the conversation with the Chinese miners. Um, mm. So there was an effort, at least from the core side, 
to try yeah, to that, that's super propagate interesting, that right? I think uh, I think that like that's uh, you know I guess like we could talk about like why that event is important, but right, you had this idea that um, you know a roadmap for Bitcoin was crafted with in a private meeting of core developers, some core developers and some miners. Um, and I, I'm sure there are some who would quibble with what I just said, but I don't know how you could no, feel it was differently like, it was about like a, it. I'm pretty sure it was like the two, four, eight deal or like a, a hard fork two megabytes and the four and then eventually eight. We're going to get Segwit at some point. Along yeah. That line. Without going into the specifics, I would say that, you know, two people, two groups walked into a room, um, Two, those two groups emerged with a, a loose understanding of, of how they would behave in terms of like changing and working together to change Bitcoin, right? That's why yeah. I preferred not to use the word upgrade because I do think that the objective way to just say it is that any anyone who's making any proposals is just trying to change Bitcoin, right? So two groups walked in a room and they left with a roadmap for how to change Bitcoin. Uh, that wasn't an open meeting and it wasn't something where uh, there was a large contingency of node operators who were invited, right? So the idea, this is another question where is it uh, inherent or is it emergent, right? So the idea that the developers uh, need, want, or think that the network is designed such that node operators in charge, like, well, did they think it was inherent or is it an emergent property? And I think where it gets, where I, I sort of become, and I, this has been something that I've latched onto over the years is that, the third option of those is that it was it's as a mischaracterization that's like malicious, right? And I think that was was so hard covering the fork wars as a reporter, is there was there was very hard to tell when people were making arguments about the ideology of Bitcoin as a philosophy and then Bitcoin as a technology, who was actually representing things correctly, because it was such a complex uh, series of events. So again, I'm not accusing anyone of doing that. I'm just saying that really you're kind of left with it being one of those three things, right? And I don't want to put you in a weird spot, but I feel like I'll get yelled at if I don't bring up the question. What was it like reporting at Coindesk on this particular event, considering uh, that Barry Silber was one of the, f the um, champions of, of Segwit2x? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the relationship with DCG and Coindesk was uh, very hands-off during that period. Um, I think it's easy to see that certain parties involved in that were, were busy with other things. Um, you know, we like you know we were allowed to cover that objectively um, as much as our understanding allowed, right? But I think this is kind of a missing piece that I go back to is that um, you know of the people who were writing at Coindesk at that point, there was four people. This was in the middle of 2017, where there was a thousand cryptocurrencies coming online every day. Uh, Michael Del Castillo covered business, so he's out. Stan, who's the editor of the block, covered short form news. So it's basically me and Alyssa, right? There wasn't like a super large amount of conversation that was happening as we were trying to just cover the story on a day to day basis. I think the biggest thing during that time wasn't the relationship of any entities, which I think all was like pretty public. It's just the amount of time and the ability for you to make decisions while both Bitcoin as a technology was being debated and Bitcoin as a philosophy were being debated and both sides were making certain representations about that technological and philosophical design as being fact. I would actually argue that given the circumstances, I think Coindesk did a pretty good job. I mean, you can kind of look at how we covered the events of the time when uh, the Segwit2x agreement was reached. The next week we had an article about how the miners felt about it, the devs felt about it, and how the businesses felt about it. Um, you know, I mean... I think we didn't, I think people who want to like kind of throw stones at that period, 
you know, think about how little understanding the businesses and the miners showed that they had about the network and then ask yourself right. like how you, how somebody would have objectively covered that as a journalist. Um, it's shocking that I think Aaron did such a good job like during that period. But again, cause I think he understood Bitcoin as a software project and I think he had, um, you know, done a lot of the prior research that I'm now doing to kind of understand that, uh, he had a better handle on the technological design and the philosophical design and what people were saying was based on past truths and not past truths. I, I still think that, that there's work to be done on making the conclusions of that more scalable. But at the time, it was basically non-existent. Like there was no way to understand. And so I guess you can ask yourself this, right? So the Segwit2x agreement is like a really interesting uh, period in Bitcoin's history, right? So you have a group of major businesses and major miners who, through the representa representation of Jihan Wu attending this meeting in New York, ostensibly agree to upgrade, to change Bitcoin, uh, you know, to increase the block size some point later in the year, according to another roadmap. Um, you know, I think that, um, yeah, again, we don't really know like what the participants in that process like expected. Um, but at the time, you know, was it wrong that they could have changed the network? I, d I don't know. We know that we know now that that isn't what happened, right? The UASF proposal was made, and through some trick of events, uh, you know, Segwit2x lost the support that it had, um, and ultimately, at the date where the UASF was supposed to be deployed, uh, you know, there was no upgrade to 2x even then i think that was actually just an awful explanation that i did of it um no i think you did a good job but i will um, but you know who like was it incorrect that they could have changed bitcoin um i think the answer is no like coindesk like we chose not to cover that story i, I will say one thing that i can say on record that i think I'm, I'm pretty proud of is that we were offered the ability to quote break the news that that agreement happens and we did not <laughs> And we declined and we covered the reaction of the people at our consensus events to the agreement. Yeah, it's a good um, move. And I think that was something where we felt that that was a good decision. I mean, we also did issue a recommendation that that should have been posted to the mailing list rather than on Coindesk, which was, you know, our position from like an editorial stance was, look, the core developers have said they're not going to consider any proposal that isn't made to the mailing list. So if you're going to make a proposal to change Bitcoin, knock on the door. So I would say... And they went and did it on Medium, right? They did, which was a horrible decision. I honestly think that that might have been the worst mistake that they made in that whole process, uh, other than doing it, which was like, you know, if you're going to change Nakamoto consensus, knock on the front door. Right. Sorry. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, look, I don't think that they knew or understood. I don't think that absolves them from their the issues or errors, but I do, I do think we have to understand it, right? So... I think that um, we all want to act like we would have behaved better in those situations. Um, but like, look at who performed in those situations and what they did. These were people who were beloved. Voorhees uh, was beloved. Charlie's friend was, be was beloved. Like Barry was beloved. Uh, Roger was beloved, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't have gotten more, like you, you couldn't have been more in the club like than being well, one of those people. That, so this is like, God, let's bring it back so many memories. It goes all the way back to the Hong Kong agreement. So there's what, two years between 
the Hong Kong agreement and this letter that we're describing. Uh, Hong Kong is February 2016, and the New York agreement is May of 2017. A year, a year, four months. Mm -hmm. Um, In between then, you had like Bitcoin Classic, Bitcoin Unlimited, Bitcoin XT. Um, There was a faction trying to push that. Coinbase was was, uh, Brian Armstrong specifically was was always behind those upgrades so there was these like tremors and shots across the bow leading to segwit2x and that letter we're describing that was posted on medium in may of 2017 was like mm. the powder peg powder keg completely blow up like we're at war now like, i actually kind of look like it i actually like to divide it in two movements there's sort of the there's the initial like gavin starting to push for uh, and I'd actually be curious for anybody who's listening, any feedback on this, but that, this is my mental model of this at this point is essentially there's two halves to the story. The first half kind of begins with Gavin deciding really on his own to push for the block size to be increased and to start the social process for getting consensus around that idea, which happens in late 2014. Um, you really have a series of, you know, debates amongst the developer group about how that consensus should be reached, what Gavin's authority is within that group, and what is the ability of you know, developer teams to represent what they're doing to the community. Um, And I think that sort of culminates with Bitcoin XT, which is ultimately the rejection that, you know, Bitcoin is subject to a democratic vote, right? Or that there can be multiple implementations that in some way allow a change of Bitcoin to be to occur as a result of a minority decision, right? Because even when you have two implementations and if majority upgrade to one, and then that, you know, creates new economic, economic conditions for the network, you're essentially still, um, you know, if you have incomplete consensus. So anyway, there's this, you know, this half of the, the developers kind of argue about, about what consensus is, how consensus should be reached and how changes should be made in, to the network. And I think that really kind of culminates with, you know, Gavin being then kind of thrown out, um, you know, at the end of that process, XT fails. Uh, there's some other attempts to reboot that process, but it really is the loss of Gavin as an authority figure behind that movement that, um, you know, sort of crimples it. And then I think the middle point in the, in the story is the uh, Ethereum split, because essentially you have an event where Ethereum has, like, the Ethereum blockchain splits. And prior to that, like, the Bitcoin developers really don't, you know, nobody really knew what it was like for a, for a blockchain to actually split while it was in production. The Bitcoin core developers say, great, this validated all our opinions about what we thought and why this is such a dumb idea. Uh, so they do their victory lap over the summer. And then the big blockers just say, well, hey, there's two forks and they're competing in the network and people are like people are they're competing in the marketplace and people are making free will choice decisions uh, to participate in one another. Uh, why are we not doing that? So then the second half, I think, is really and I think it's kind of ironic that Ethereum is kind of like the middle point in that. Because I do think that the both groups kind of go their separate directions from that, right? The the big blockers are really like emboldened by the idea that there's multiple blockchains like working within Ethereum, and I think the second half is like the rejuvenation of that effort, right? You have uh, Jihan and Roger funding alternative developer and teams, those sputter. There's the New York agreement, uh, but look, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> there's so much to unpack. Mm. Um, it's funny. And look, I've, uh, I'd love to talk to anybody who is interested in those events or was there or anything. I've been doing a lot of research over the last you know, year or so to really flesh those out. So, right, It's crazy because I was just at that point mainly like 2014, 2015, 2016, just a lurker on Twitter watching it unfold and like Bitcoin talk and then Twitter. A lot of it went down on Twitter, which was 
interesting. Um, a lot of yeah, I think like one of that's another fascinating thing that your listeners may not know, but like Bitcoin Twitter is kind of a weird anomaly from the scaling wars because I think by late 2015 is when kind of everybody goes on Twitter for the first time because prior to that in Bitcoin's history, it was really defined by Bitcoin talk and Reddit were really the large kind of social gathering places. And then it isn't until around the time of uh, scaling Bitcoin, which was the conference series that was kind of set up to, to mitigate the tensions between the sides, that that's when you start seeing the tweets kind of like going out from different sides, coordinating in real time. And, and really through that, I think that's where Bitcoin Twitter kind of takes off. Um, there's a reason that some of the old timers are on there. Like, like I wasn't really on Twitter. Like people didn't really, uh, it wasn't really the main social coordination network. No, it's just, yeah, it's the whole social aspect of this is so fascinating. Like it's the first time we're doing this right in this way, like at a global scale. I mean, some people would argue Linux came first and it was very similar, but I think, uh, the stakes are much higher with Bitcoin considering, it's a it's a network tied to a to a monetary token, a monetary good that hopes to. Yeah, I would say the other I would I'd say the other side effect of the burying the complexity of these stories is that I think this is one of the things that sort of emboldens the multi cryptocurrency like movement like as a whole because I think that amongst like the more like quote unquote uh, intellectuals who engage with our space like there is a there is a tendency for. Like, look, if you're a commentator, if you're like a random economist looking at what's going on in cryptocurrency or you're a journalist looking at what's going on in cryptocurrency uh, and you don't understand that these are all software projects that are competing for finite developer talents and like, you know, uh, in a lot of respects, like the, you know, energy of like certain computing, like these are computer networks. Um, it's hard to like wrap your head around those things and it's easy to come to false conclusions like that we can live in a world that there's, well, there'll be millions of cryptocurrencies. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. Like maybe we will, but. Um, I don't think we will. Yeah, it seems increasingly unlikely the more you understand how complex Bitcoin is, why you would ever want to build a system that, you know, has those features. And I think you've seen Silicon Valley go through all of the versions of this, like Bitcoin, right? They thought it was a payment network. Uh, then in 2017, it was a way to fund open source. And well, that's not something you hear anymore. And, uh, you know, these ideas kind of come and go and they die. And I, I understand why people are dismissive of those who traffic in those ideas um, or are sympathetic to them. I still would argue that um, Bitcoin ideology, it just takes a long time to understand. Um, and I don't think it is very easy to become a Bitcoiner. I think it's easier, right? I think you're seeing a lot of people on board through Twitter, like certainly Michael Saylor is a great example and you know, podcasters like yourself and Stephen Levera and Peter McCormick and Dan Helds uh, have all done a fantastic job, I think, at proving that Twitter is now the place where people are onboarding, people are choosing Bitcoin. Um, but I still think, and this is like my one point, is like I still think that the ideology uh, Sorry, when I say ideology, I mean the technical design of Bitcoin and philosophical design of Bitcoin and how accessible it is to understand both of those things. When I say the ideology, like that's what I mean, like how accessible it is to really actually understand both of those things. And I think the answer is it still takes a long time. It took me a long time. I think it takes a lot of people a long time. I think the difference between me and a lot of people is that I didn't stop doing that. So you mentioned like, you know, my personal choices at Coindesk or other places where I worked in the past, like I was put in challenging positions where I was forced to make decisions without as much information I would like as I would have liked. Um, and I think the choice is I just didn't stop 
like trying to learn about Bitcoin. I like, kept doing that. So I, I continue to be, it's, it's continues to be something I'm kind of adamant about because I think people who are met with that pressure, it's like they should persevere. You can, you can get through that. Right. That's uh, um, you should always try to learn more about Bitcoin, increase your understanding of it. Um, and I think that's uh, a value that everyone should have. Yeah. And it takes time years. Like I was, I, I thought Bitcoin was my space in like 2013, 2014, Proof of stake really caught me. Um, fast transactions, uh, low block times. Like I thought, Bitcoin was like, why would you be so slow, uh. Uh, dumb? Why is it consuming so much energy? It takes time, <laughs> right? And soft, especially if you don't understand software. Right, right. Like luckily for me, like I was while I was learning about Bitcoin, like during college, I was like interning at a hedge fund where like i needed to know how to run software to pull data from places and so sort of had like a a like vague understanding of software and went to take a boot camp to understand front-end development a little bit more and then worked at a software company understand back-end development if you don't understand actually how software works how front-ends back-ends interact and then you take it to a distributed system like bitcoin and understand how that uh works and how running that software works and how you change the software not upgrade mm. um it's hard and like i, I mean i got i got a little, a little little tipsy after a hot date last thursday and saw Raoul paul t saying that uh that ethereum is gonna like, be the, <laughs> the largest uh yeah. total addressable market and I, I said you don't understand software like if, if, you, mm. if you truly believe that um because it's pretty much evident at this point that ethereum guys have made Ethereum guys, the Ethereum project has made trade-offs that aren't advantageous and sort of limit the upside potential that that network has. And ETH 2.0, in my opinion, is a Hail Mary that uh, I think is going to be an incomplete pass at the end of the day. Um, yeah, I mean, I can definitely uh, share my thoughts on Ethereum. I mean, I do think that it is... It, the, why, uh, I, the thing that I think is not talked about enough about that is that I, the Ethereum 2.0 is at least an attempt to, we were talking about the clients, right? Like the idea that under original Bitcoin design, the clients were, you know, there, there wasn't really supposed to be a division between nodes and, and miners, right? Uh, Ethereum 2.0 is at least like a, it's an attempt to go back and fix that issue by essentially giving everybody the tools to be a node and a miner, I guess. Like that's the best that a case that I could make for it. But even then I'm like, okay, well, it might be that even though we don't design the way the system the way the Satoshi intended, we might have the best version of that system, and that Bitcoin might be working because it is now has those two different types of clients. So, I think there's a lot of tendency amongst other cryptocurrency communities to try to solve problems that are perceived problems rather than actual problems, right? So, in the case of um, the issue with the Bitcoin client, like issue, I guess you would call it. it, it it came about over time that the way that Satoshi had theorized that the client Bitcoin client would run isn't what happened in practice because proof of work ultimately made it so that you required more and more computing power to compete for rewards. Uh, that means now that we live in a time where we have many people running nodes who are incentivized to keep the network honest and aligned with their values. And we have many Bitcoin miners who are spending millions of dollars a year on real world goods to provide as much security as like energy as humanly possible to the network. And it might be that that's the best design, even though it wasn't what quote unquote Satoshi intended. And I think this is where I think 
Vitalik, I've always seen the design of Ethereum 2.0 as somewhat aspirational in that it all these staking systems is like they're trying to undo this client issue in Bitcoin because I think that it, it's again there is this emergence trend that like there is two types of clients within the Bitcoin network um, and there is a view from other software developers to conceive of this as a problem, um, but that is a subjective decision that they've made and it might not be true. And I think Turdemeister has like the best quote on Ethereum, which is like you know it's, can you buy a software innovation still i think that was the first thing he tweeted about ethereum when it launched and it's still the only like interesting question about ethereum as a software project right now it's like can you buy that innovation and is that innovation correct and uh either or both or none of those things might be correct you know right no yeah and and, I, and again so maybe pos is a an attempt to get back to the original one client, one CPU, one vote. There was also a lot of virtue signaling about the climate, and that's becoming it's becoming more and more abundantly clear that actually Bitcoin may may help the environment by by consuming energy that would have otherwise been wasted, vented into the atmosphere, and then driving innovation around renewable energy production because people are toying it with it more, um, and. I think that's something like it was all, I mean, it was a LARP. We need to go to proof of stake to help the environment. It's coming, it's becoming more obvious. I think at least to people in the industry that, uh, Bitcoin may not be as bad for the environment as previously thought. And, and then you couple that with trying to buy the innovation, which I love that line, um, is I gotta work on this line some more, but I do think it is that the Bitcoin hasn't failed at what Ethereum is succeeding at. I think it's like a very true thing, right? It's, right? it's a time preference thing, right? Ethereum has a different time preference than Bitcoin. And I think we have to, as Bitcoiners continue to say, it's like, well, Bitcoin has not failed at what Ethereum is succeeding at. But There's if you an flip order that, of operations. Right. Well, we, if you flip that question around and you could ask, like, has Ethereum failed at what Bitcoin is succeeding at? And I think there's a stronger case for that, right? Yes. Bitcoin now has like a, a network in which all participants, like, uh, you know, the, the hierarchy of participants is aligned enough and we know the decision-making is being made in a centralized way. So the two questions again are like, has Bitcoin failed at what Ethereum is succeeding at? No. Has Ethereum failed at what Bitcoin is succeeding at? It looks like that the answer to that might, might be yes, but yes, um, they have to make ETH 2.0 to be successful. Like that proves like you have to create a whole new network. Like it's, it's like not even a question. It's, it's, and so I, and I mean, the freaks who are listening to this, well, maybe you're a new freak. Welcome if you are. Um, I've said this before, like ETH 2.0 is, and this was a concept that was uh, first described to me by Elikai Turkle, uh, Bitcoin Core Dev. It's a, it's a run of the mill, like classic uh, second system syndrome problem where you have this one system, it has some problems and uh, you think you can fix all of them with a completely separate new system uh, and you just turn into a, a shit show of a project that has numbers of delays and it just keeps getting delayed till it never comes to fruition, um, which E2.0 and well, so E2.0 started out as a transition to proof of stake. So I, I just view E2.0 as, as the goal being transition to proof of stake and that timeline started when ETH launched, I believe, before they even launched, they said, hey, within 18 months, we're going to transition from proof of work to proof of stake. Um, so that was the first deadline. And that's just been pushed back and back and back. Um, like the 
beginning of the Beacon Chain was supposed to launch January of this year. It didn't happen until a couple of weeks ago. So, mm. yeah, I mean, I and I go back to that. I I would say that um, kind of the like things that history reveals. Things. One of the things I was struck by recently, and I've I've tried to keep like bringing it up in my head to see what value I get from it, but it appears that like Bitcoin didn't really have a coordinated development community like prior to it reaching a dollar. And like, that's kind of astounding. And that's actually like, if you look at all cryptocurrencies and this is definitely true of Ethereum where the, you know, again, the, the smart investors will always say, Oh, there's so many developer developers building on Ethereum. Well, you know, you look at the history of Bitcoin and you can see that before mid 2011, there's no mailing list. It's not really a group of developers like working in any coordinated fashion. Uh, there's a leader who's leaving and somebody else is coming on and there's a few people working on it. But even then, the idea of Bitcoin and the economic network, the the actual value of the network, like Bitcoin had reached a dollar. Like on the strength merely of its original design, it had gone from zero to a dollar, which if you look at the step functions that, you know, plan B and those, those people, that's a huge, it's a massive step function, massive um, and to think that that wasn't an actual product of software innovation from developer teams actively working on it, well, what are you left with this thesis? And I think it's the it's the lack of accessibility to Bitcoin's history and the lack of like the way that we've been able to like explain some of these things, I think has created this environment where these other, not saying that they wouldn't be around, but I think it would be harder for them to exist because they'd have to like more clearly define like why they exist in some way. Whereas right now, um, you know, I've kind of developed like this idea of what Bitcoin is as a philosophy. And it's, you know, to me, it's like Bitcoin is sovereign. Uh, the node is the vehicle by which that sovereignty is expressed. The uh, soft fork is the preferred method of updating Bitcoin because uh, to do a hard fork is to disenfranchise the sovereignty of people who chose one of the first two things. And then fourth, like the sound money principle, like that Bitcoin enforces uh, the economic conditions under which which sound money would be possible, thus leading to the success and propagation of the network. Like those four things, like Bitcoin is an incredibly well-designed philosophical system. And if you try to break down Ethereum or another cryptocurrency, like along those lines, I think you just find some holes. Like, so what makes you a participant in Ethereum? It's like, is you, you run a wallet? Like, I don't, like, is it, do I have a MetaMask? So like, I'm a, I'm a participant in Ethereum. Like, I don't, I don't really understand. Is Ethereum sovereign? Like, is it like, what's the design goal? It's, it's a platform. Um, or like, you know, the hard forks and software. Okay. So hard forks are good because I can, as a user who has a wallet do what exactly? Like, what's the, like, I don't know. I just like, I like that framework because I kind of like the more I run other cryptocurrencies through it, I'm like, okay, well, you don't really seem to have the same robust ideology that Bitcoin has. So that either means that Bitcoin's ideology is wrong or that's right. And it's just the best version of that that could exist. Um, I think the thing that's sad is like, that's not easy to understand that to get me to the point where I could actually say, okay, these four things like kind of, this is what I think Bitcoin philosophy is now. Like it took so much, so long to understand that. Um, and I think they don't understand that, right? Like, cause we've seen these groups as we've been talking about through this whole discussion and going back to the article, which you can read, it's, you know, people confronting Bitcoin and, and their infinite human uh, humanity, like behaving like humans, right? Just doing dumb yeah. things. Yeah. We do do dumb things as humans. It is, uh, and that's always something I ponder is, is at what point does Bitcoin as a software project get to a point where it's so established? It's like, all right, it's here. My kids are going to use it. My grandkids are going to use it. Let's stop quibbling over these 
these flipping narratives and all that stuff. I think but... I think what we, we I think what we will find is that uh, Bitcoin will continue to exist in an adversarial environment. And I think the greatest gift that the people who have come through the Bitcoin history have given us, it's, it's, to, it's to be skeptical and to constantly question like why we believe certain things. Um, and I think yeah, if we fall why... out of that, that's, that's where we will, you know, again, Bitcoin will always constantly live in an adversarial environment. Yeah. Always. That's why I was interested to say that uh, in the beginning of this conversation, Greg Maxwell and Thamos stick out. Um, to you particularly because i thought amir taki actually was the hero of this story um hmm. in my mind <laughs> uh well he is in that he i think like amir if you read this story like he says the things that we would say now yeah um like at every time where someone should say them and it's interesting to think that he was such an outsider figure there right so um to me i think this proves that like look individual people did have an impact on bitcoin and they did help lay down some of these philosophies right i think I'm, i think the idea that bitcoin is sovereign and that its users like have some rights to participation in the system is kind of a, a mere talky thing right the idea yeah. that um reading this article right you can see that luke jr is one of the first ones who asks like what philosophical like uh motivations should developers have and like you know he runs he essentially runs the developer decision making process through the prism of like how it differentiates from central bankers making decisions. And like no one else did that from what I can see. Um, so you, you're left with like, okay, well maybe it is somewhat of a unique distinction to Luke that he was able to see and articulate that. Um, and I think that, you know, the system didn't invalidate it, right? That was the important part is the important part is that over time, everybody who's like running the numbers on these ideas, uh, like they, they couldn't invalidate what he said. Um, which means that we, I think we have a system within Bitcoin where knowing that, like, as the story shows that these ideas were under as much pressure as they were and that they were attacked by authorities within the system, yet they persevered would tell us that, you know, the anti-fragility of Bitcoin is just strong, right? It's an anti-fragile system, even to people and ideas, um, where, you know, they could have easily not continued. Um, yeah, I do like Amir in the piece. I, yeah, I don't mean to say that I don't like Amir in the piece. I think he... You know, he comes at the right time with like the right things <laughs> for sure. Um, and ultimately, right. look, he does argue for for there to be a deference given to Luke, um, and he does argue for the slow and kind of painful development of the process we have today. Um, and I think that's you know um, those are good things. Um, but yeah, I think look, there's there's a lot of characters in the piece where I was able to come away, and this is really what I wanted to kind of express with the work, and you know, kind of saying that I'll be moving forward in this direction for some time is like. I think we should ask ourselves like about these choices, right? There's a reason that like cultures over time develop history. I was talking with Dan uh, at Kraken the other day about this. And, you know, I was saying that, uh, you know, Dan is like the Bitcoin dream, you know, he's out there telling you to set up a, a shack in the, in the frontier <laughs> and like, you know, get beaver pelts, like, cause you're an America man. It's like freedom, you know, it's like, here's, uh, here's, here, here's, you know, America has the American dream, right? Bitcoin, we have the Bitcoin dream, right? That's what we need to sell this idea that, you know, Bitcoin is the front, the new frontier, right? Um, I think Balaji actually has kind of memed this a little bit with his like Bitcoin as a front. With exit. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like, you know, I do think we also need a robust like understanding of our past. And I think America, like as a system, if you want to look at it, it's like, you know, you can go back and you can look at the founding fathers and you can understand like what they thought and how they disagreed and like how their disagreements made democracy like a developed uh, ideology. And yeah, I, how, 
Hmm? Do you think about the parallels between the founding fathers and Bitcoin? Like, is Bitcoin oh, yeah, talk oh, our yeah, federal? And I think Bitcoin the lack talk? of that is like a real issue, right? I saw, I'm like, so personal story, like my, my wife is, uh, she's uh, Quebecois, which from Canada, um, and she really got into Hamilton like over the summer. And, you know, she was able to kind of come to this idea of America through our understanding people contributed to it right so you're able to kind of learn about hamilton and then you can watch the john adams miniseries and then you learn about john adams and you like learn about washington and you can see how you know again like they like they didn't always agree some of them had very sharply different ideas on what they were building was um but that there's a certain scalability to the american ideological system because it's well understood and we allow for these disagreements and we celebrate these figures that disagree um, so with Jefferson and Hamilton being like kind of the two polar opposites, um, you know, uh, within Bitcoin, I think we have figures who like meet those descriptions, right? Um, I think it takes a long time to understand like who those people are and to properly honor them. And again, I think with this, one of the reasons I took so long to write this 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 work, I think as I've mentioned, I've been kind of like researching in this area for like probably about a year now. It's kind of like the first thing I've pumped out is that, you know, I think the getting the context right really matters. I actually, we we need to do this right. I agree. Um, but I think the value again is that we can create the conditions under which people can come to these ideas and they can feel more personal. An idea that you come to on your own is always going to be more personal than something that somebody memes like you, um, you know, that's my feeling at least anyway. No, I agree. Yeah, it's important to know this stuff. That's why I recommend, it's like when somebody's first getting into Bitcoin, I send them to Satoshi's emails and old Bitcoin talk forum threads. Um, it's really amazing that that stuff exists. To be honest, the more that I've been working on that stuff, um, it's absolutely astonishing the amount of information we have on, on Bitcoin's creation. Um, and, you know, I think that's the other cool thing about the article um, is that it's the first time I think that, you know, there's been a significant usage of it. Um, you know, cause I mentioned me and Aaron kind of went through the IRC. We went through uh, Bitcoin talk. We went through the mailing list. Um, you know, there's a good, there's a good amount of stuff there. I mean, I will say my document, like each of those documents was like a hundred pages of like random notes and then it gets distilled to something. But, um, you know, look, yeah, I think that's, that's valuable, right? Tying it to the founding fathers these forums are like the federalist papers <laughs> of our time, right? Like the, where yeah. these debates are happening. Well, I certainly anonymous, think so because they said federalist don't papers were anonymous away. too, to an extent, weren't they? Well, again, like, I, I mean, I, I think so because they don't, they don't seem to be going away. Right. Like, that's the thing. Um, somebody joked on Twitter, um, after reading this article, they were like, oh, I can just see somebody writing, like writing a thesis about Luke Jr.'s like stance on P2SH, uh, in some like college class. Well, it's like, well, we, we write about 17th century British law, like right now. So like, I mean, how, how, like in, as American kids, like, <laughs> like, so what, I mean, is that really, so if the system we're building is that strong, then like that will happen. Like, then we like, will have to do that yeah i had to control f to get the name right but some people would argue to check hash verify actually probably would have been a better decision than ptsh right yeah the consensus today well i think that's the interesting variable with C uh, p2sh is that you know there were two proposals there was p2sh which is gavin's proposal and chv which is luke's proposal which interestingly is actual just another version of p2sh this is one of the things where you know, Gavin was a little savvier sometimes with branding and, and getting his, his message out there than Luke. Um, but yeah, now like developers will largely say, had they been given enough time, they think that Luke's proposal would have won out. So we're given a situation with this P2H stage story where uh, it seems to be that the, uh, the assumed authority of an individual influenced an outcome in a way 
that core developers now think like would have been not been the right decision. And that invites us to consider that that is how the Bitcoin system was then. And, uh, you know, it has it changed now, right? Is, is it at a higher level of scrutiny uh, that we want it to today? And has it changed for the better? Um, you know, certainly I had always heard that about P2SH, right? I'd always heard that 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 these things were true. I think the difference now is like, if you really want to know about it, you can go back and read it and you can see the theories and see what people argued. And um, to me, that just means more than just being told what to think about something. Um, but, you know, so don't trust verify, right? Well, it's exactly what I was just going to say. <laughs> yeah. It's like, there's so many levels of abdicating trust to other people within the Bitcoin system. Like I'm, I, understand software but i can't read the code and dissect and understand what it's going to do um so i do have to trust the developers to a certain extent but to the extent that you don't need to trust things by being able to go back and read this open history um you should definitely verify on your own i completely agree with that yeah i hope somebody who reads this like they can find the links like i mean we tried to like really link to all the relevant irc discussions so you can kind of go back and like read it yourself like i mean i think you can spend some time like kind of going down i've heard some of the other developers have said to me that they've done that and kind of looked at you know uh some of the threads and i think yeah it's it's that collective you know the hive mind right it's like we need to the more of an understanding we have this stuff um you know, again, I think the more confident we can be in in Bitcoin, and I think that to me, it, it you know, it comes from a desire to be more confident and to prove uh, that things happened like absolutely right. Um, and I just think like you know, coming out of that fork war period, it's like I don't, I wasn't convinced of that, and I don't know who would have been who if you were a participant in that, um, because you know, it's a, it's a part of the history where there's a lot. Um, it just seems like it's been allowed to be swept in the back of the closet. Right. For whatever reason. <laughs> well, now we have more eyes on it. And that's like, again, I, so I go back and forth to be interested to see how you view it, but I write the bent five days a week. And again, it's like a journal of what's going on sometimes in the macro landscape. A lot of, I talk about Bitcoin development when there's something exciting to me and sort of, a snapshot of what went on on one particular day through my lens. Um, so trying, I don't know if I'm preserving, not, I'm not definitely not preserving history. I'm a secondary source, right? I'm not a primary source. Um, and how does that fit into everything? Like you mentioned before we hit record, you like to talk about like the Bitcoin podcasting space and how that's exploding it's out of a demand for education around this and how much, yeah, but I think we have to remember that like people are pro like you know, they're people are gonna be profit motivated and their their motivations are gonna extend beyond Bitcoin. And I think that um, you know, if there's a takeaway to it, it is it is still that, that that distrust and that questioning it has to extend to the social circles, right? So as we go into another period where look, I think we're all expecting Bitcoin to have a huge year next year. We're all ex- excited that there's gonna be a number of institutions coming in. Um you know, and, and, and participating in the ecosystem. Um, but let's be on guard because, you know, we've seen these situations happen before where Bitcoin has been defined too narrowly as like a payments network. So are we defining Bitcoin too narrowly as a store of value or as an asset? Uh, we've seen situations before where profit motivated actors like can use their positions in the network to try to enforce change. Is yeah, it likely I- that the number of those people will like those profit motivated actors will increase in the coming year? likely um so definitely 
<laughs> let's not, uh, you know, I, I think like, you know, we're all excited about the continued economic growth of the Bitcoin network, but, um, you know, I, again, for people who haven't been around for one of these eras, I think like this P2SH article shows and, you know, the, what we've been alluding to about this, the four course period is that, uh, there's nothing that guarantees the present now from being free from the sins of the past. No, I agree. No, that's going to be an uphill. Yeah. Is Bitcoin just a, a, an asset that should be held? Just sit somewhere and accumulate. Well, you value. mentioned Amir, Amir Daki. I mean, he, he's probably one of the biggest critics of Bitcoin right now. And I think he's largely been somebody who, uh, you know, the industry has kind of stopped looking at. But I, th I thought it was ironic that you thought he was like so, uh, he had so much foresight back then. I'm an Amir stan. I don't completely agree with. Uh, with everything he says these days, I, I understand his frustration um, because of just his personal belief of what he was trying to do at Rehova when he was there. Uh, he needed a certain type of utility from Bitcoin where arguably it just wasn't, again, going back to the order of operations, just wasn't completely ready yet. And that could be frustrating, especially for somebody who's Going back to your father, so founding father's thing, I like to look at Amir and Gavin as sort of like the two kind of warring fathers of Bitcoin. Like, I think the fork wars kind of rendered each of them as being like, like Bitcoin didn't need them anymore, but they were sort of the original yin and yang of, of Bitcoin, right? Where you had Gavin, the stay-at-home dad who wanted Bitcoin to be a respectable thing that businesses were built on. And that, you know, uh, I think the the Gavin version is the platonic, you know, version of Bitcoin as something that would have been accepted in the world because it was good for all, right? Um, there's a kind of innocence to Gavin as, as, a, as a person. And I think his vision of Bitcoin was innocent. And then there's the <laughs> Miyataki version who's like Bitcoin as the anti-state tool, like we should be anonymous and like we should be actively destabilizing <laughs> like the world order, <laughs> um, which is like later, like Amir is not there yet in the story, but I think it alludes to like um, uh, the later Miyataki years where he's, you know, literally doing that and like running around in Texas with AK-47s and, you know, things like that. Um, yeah, I think they're kind of like the, like, there's a certain duality to them, right? And I think big, I think the interesting thing is that Bitcoin chooses neither of them. Um, right. But I think it has chosen to be more, I think the version we have of Bitcoin is indebted still in some ways to both of them, right? Like Bitcoin does reject both of them, <laughs> like as um, like at some point they just become too locked in their own vision to be useful for Bitcoin. And, and, you know, they, they kind of fall out of the framework, but uh, well, I think they could be both. It could be both. It's, it could be all these things. Again, it's just going to take time. It's going to take an order of operations. And yeah, no, I can see the institutional treasury asset store value narrative creeping and they'll probably fight to make it that way. But then you're talking to one of the biggest lightning network bulls in the world right here. I'm pretty sure. And like, I use the lightning network. I really, like I get utility out of using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. And like, and again, like with the messaging apps, like, is that a medium of exchange? Like that's, is that a messaging network? Hmm. Um, well, I think maybe to go this, back to like, what you're saying, I think like we all also have to figure out how to use our skills for the benefit of Bitcoin, right? We have to like kind of realign our, ourselves towards that. And I think with this article, I think personally, like I was very frustrated within Coindesk, right? I, th I think like certainly to the extent that Coindesk became the institution that it is, like a lot of that was due to like, you know, my work in that and like making that a thing. Um, but I ultimately feel like a lot of that work 
doesn't stand up now. Like there's no reason for you to continue like to go back to that, to the work that I did. And whereas I think with this one, it's, you know, I've gotten closer personally to alignment of like, okay, what am I good at as a human? And like, how, how am I able to do that for Bitcoin? Um, I think this is the first thing that I can say. And, and it's crazy. Like I've actually been, I've been employed in the cryptocurrency industry for close to eight years. And to say that I've very like, few people that can say that. What do you say? <laughs> so there's very few people who can say that. Right. Yeah. I mean, but like to think that it would take me that long to get to the point where it's like, okay, I, I think this is like the first thing that I've written where it's like, I, I could see people reading it in like five years or 10 years and like coming away with something. And I feel good about that. Um, you know, it's first step, probably going to take a break from the, the podcast circuit for a while and keep working on it. But, you know, um, I did want to surface what I'm doing because I, I, you know, I, I do think that this is going to require, like, if we're going to do it for other parts of the Bitcoin history, or certainly ones that are more contentious. Like, I think P2SH is, you know, not super contentious in retrospect. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do feel like we can do more work here to make the Bitcoin ideology more scalable and to understand in more detail the events that shaped Bitcoin and... I think you can make the argument that these events and people did shape Bitcoin. Um, and if we yeah, well, end up not understanding that, I do think we'll lose something. I completely agree. And I got a couple more topics for you to cover. I'm sure you already thought of them, but like the bugs, like uh, the overflow bug from 2011, 2011 the, yeah. the hard fork in 2013, and then the CVE bug in 2018. Um, I was actually, I could be, a, I could help you with that story. I'll <laughs> be happy. Before. Yeah. We should chat about it. Yeah. I mean, I, look, the... I think, uh, there's plenty of drama in Bitcoin's past, right. Without creating right. some new drama. <laughs> well, that like that particular weekend we we're going to is a huddle, huddle conference in Riga. Hmm. And I just so happened to be on the same flight as Matt Corallo. And hmm. he was literally like writing the, the post to the mailing list, like describing the bug and like pushing code to like patch it, I believe. Wow. And I'm what like sitting there. 2018 i believe yeah oh interesting. Um, yeah. Huh. and like i'm watching <laughs> matt like dealing with probably like one of the biggest event events in bitcoin history in person it was just like cool comic collected that's crazy sitting on his laptop on the floor in an airport and i'm like oh you want a beer <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story man yeah and look i think like the those those guys you know it's like um you know we do owe them a lot right like the developers have really uh you know they've uh have kept Bitcoin going. And really, you know, I, I think the more that I study the Bitcoin story, um, the more it is within Bitcoin development is an act of preservation. Whereas within cryptocurrency development is an act of like bravado or like innovation. Like Bitcoin is about preservation. Like in inherently the developers were always asked to preserve Bitcoin because Satoshi left. And like, the, so the default way they acted towards it was like nobody wanted to be the one to mess it up, like because it was working. And if there wasn't a great argument that it wasn't was broken in some way, you just preserved it because it wasn't yours. Uh, I think the other cryptocurrencies don't have that value set, um, and they they adopt a more, you know, it's like innovation for the sake of innovation. It's innovation for the sake of competition. Um, but yeah, Bitcoin is the story of an innovation being preserved, not really made. I think. No, I I, I love that. That gets to the slow and steady versus move fast and break things mentality that a lot of people don't understand again comparing bitcoin to vc culture it's just it's hard for to compute for some people especially like in an era when bitcoin came up which is like vc tech 
like apps were just like that's when they had their blow up their glow up if you will um sort of dominated the the conversation and mind share around technology um these unicorn apps and stuff like that yeah i mean look i think there's uh i think some of the story is still unfolding right i think the 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 biggest narrative right now, I think, is the economics of Bitcoin. I, like, I'm continually shocked by the lack of any like, like real like writing about this in any of like the crypto now many crypto news outlets or other things where it's like how little we actually understand about how the economics of Bitcoin. We're on the verge of watching Bitcoin uh, look like it's going to like you know uh, hit a new. It looks like it's going to set a new all-time high four years from the previous time that it did that, four years from the previous time it did that. And in each of those three cases, it's exactly mathematically equivalent to how far away it was from the halving, having on each of those times. So the fact that there's so little intellectual like brain power being put into understanding, like, okay, like you're gonna tell me the third Bitcoin bubble is a bubble? How is that possible? How is how is that how is that even humanly possible that you could believe a third Bitcoin bubble? that everyone within Bitcoin is predicting and will probably have him is a bubble. At that point, you're dealing with some, some part of the system that we don't know or understand yet. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Again, I, I think that uh, it's hard to come to Bitcoin with open eyes and without prior thing. We all bring so much baggage to Bitcoin um, and collectively too. That's not like individually we do it, but also collectively. Um, so yeah, this, this would be the fourth bubble technically, right? Because I think I believe it went to like 11 cents then crashed below a penny at one point. And then, um, or 13 yeah, but the 2011 like one is prior to having. Okay. So it's weird. Like it's hard for us to know. Yeah, this is where I get, I think it like somebody with some mathematical degree, like that isn't me. You should study this, but like all we have is plan B right now. The, uh, well, the, the question that I keep, keep asking myself is if it, if Bitcoin hits a new all time high, next December, let's just take a hypothesis. Let's just take a, a scientific hypothesis. If Bitcoin hits an all-time high in 2021, December, and its previous all-time highs were December 2017 and tw- December 2013, how is it ma- possible? And this is what I've like argued until I was like, I had a recent argument with one of the editors at the block and I was like, uh, how is it possible that there would be, th- if, if you believe that Bitcoin is purely a function of there being uh, of, of, of uh, consumer sentiments, and demand, then, then how is it possible that there are three bubbles that occur mathematically equidistant from each other with precision? Like at, at that point, how is Bitcoin volatile or speculative at all? Um, it has to be at that point, mathematic. it's just actually mathematically precise. It's, it's volatile, it's predictable and cyclical. It's not stable, but predictable, oh. predict, predictability and cyclicality are in a sense stability because if you if you know that something is going to be predictable, <laughs> like it is an effect of stable because you can make choices around it. Um, all this is to say, I think that like you know we're we're going to happen on like a big test over the next year of Bitcoin's economic power as a unit, and I think the sheer brute force of how the having impacts its economy, and I think we should keep that in the back of our minds where it's like, if, if it is true that Bitcoin is mooning or I don't know, like, you know, again, like uh, increasing in value at a mathematically precise rate, uh, that's crazy. Yeah. It's insane. And what if it doesn't happen? That's like one thing. Like what if, what if we just hover at 20,000 for the next like year and a half? Um, how does that change people's perspective of Bitcoin? Are these bubbles uh, in, in, necessary to build the confidence 
for Bitcoin to succeed. Like I've always described the price, particularly the bubbles, as just like an index of confidence of Bitcoin at any given point in time. Um, well, maybe, I think it's. Maybe... I, I agree with the. I've, I've come to more agree with the speculative attack model from Pierre because I think, with myself personally, um, one of the reasons that I became so such a staunch like Bitcoin over the years is I was economically penalized for non-participation. Like as a journalist, I didn't invest in what I was covering because I didn't want to have a conflict of interest. So. I was economically. Let's dive into that. Huh? Like, let's, let's dive. Why is that something in, in the journalism space? Like, uh... Uh, there are still fierce debates about this. There was recently in the, in the uh, cryptocurrency journalist organization forum, the, the no coiners were, were very staunchly throwing, uh, throwing a lot of tantrums about, uh, you know, how we weren't, uh, there wasn't enough reporting about how Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme, um, which. <laughs> uh, it's not a Ponzi scheme. Ponzi scheme needs a leader. All right. Next question. Um, I mean, I, so my, my point was like, okay, well, if you believe that, then why aren't you writing stories about them? And then what, how are you proving that? Uh, other than just yelling it on Twitter all day. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, journalists, um, again, like that ideology comes from trying to make, uh, you get into but, the idea of objectivity, right? Um, yeah. So Matt and I had this discussion on rabbit hole recap the week before last, but doesn't like, is wouldn't forcing journalists forcing their hands and not allowing them to invest in the asset make them bias the other direction because they're watching this price appreciation and they're not allowed to participate and then they just get inherently salty <laughs> i think there's a lot of, i think there's a lot of uh well I, I think there's some evidence to that to, to suggest that right i think um i don't know i, I I think this comes from the idea that um and not to like kind of start like another uh thread that i've been on lately but um you know in a, uh, there's this idea of objectivity where it's like you should try to be free from bias and then present both the facts of both sides like it's kind of like one of the default lenses of journalism there there are other lenses there's not journalism has many schools right um so someone like yourself or um uh, I don't know a, a podcaster in the in, in the industry. You might identify more with like the it's called the new school of journalism. So this would have been like um, Hunter Thompson or uh, Tom Wolf or somebody like that who love know, Hunter Thompson. Yeah, and Hunter Thompson strongly objected to objectivity. Right, like his his point of putting himself in his writing was that you couldn't be you can't be anything other than yourself. And then the way that you uh, he did his writing was that he used himself as a character to kind of prove his journalistic points. Um, so yeah, that is one school. I think the markets journal, like cryptocurrency has been sharply defined of late by markets journalism. And therefore it defaults to this view that all cryptocurrencies are essentially the same in the way that all stocks or bonds are the same, which I think that's the, the highly problematic part is I think they've I think most of the crypto journalism outlets have largely stopped viewing them as competing software projects and now view them as like competing numbers within a terminal. Uh, I think that is really bad. Yes, I agree. And uh, proves that a lot of these people don't understand software and the inherent limitations and uh, mechanics of these systems. Uh, and like, so... Well, I mean, it is true that all most cryptocurrencies continue to have a non-zero value. Um, that doesn't make all cryptocurrencies Bitcoin. I think you can argue that Bitcoin is a, by every conceivable metric, infinite, like much larger system. Um, you do still have to square the circle at some point of that. Other cryptocurrencies are have a non-zero value. The best that I can say for them is that they have a non-zero value that seems to be continuing <laughs> for much longer than any of us uh, can um, 
can uh, reason. I, I think what we'll ultimately find is that they're tracking Bitcoin and that Bitcoin is the unit that is moving everything. Like Bitcoin is the sun in the center of the universe of cryptocurrencies. And it is the gravity of Bitcoin that is pulling the other things up and down rather than the other things being inherently separate. Because if they were truly differentiated, and there were many attempts post-2017 for different like research organizations or news outlets to come up with some uh, theory, like, you know, or like way to classify them, right? CoinGecko had like the five-point developer score system, like, and then the social scores, and like CoinDesk had like something about like that. Um, you know, so there, there, there has been many attempts to try to articulate why that thesis would be correct. And I'd argue that they've all sort of died. And I think the only real conclusion you can make is that like, yeah, Bitcoin, Bitcoin is the thing that continues to, uh, the Bitcoin has an economic power, like, like there, because of the having, and because of the software programming of Bitcoin, Bitcoin, like this is the pure start speculative attack thing is like Bitcoin ensures its own success. And it actually attacks the financial system by becoming more valuable. And therefore, like, like you are economically penalized by through non-participation in the Bitcoin network. And I continue to say it like this because that's the that that's the thing that did it for me. It was that I it was that the realization that I was being economically penalized for non-participation in the market, or even conceiving of that. You're like, shit! I'm economically penalized for not being able, like the, the Bitcoin economy is rewarding users at a vastly more competitive rate than the traditional economy. However, you want to say it, you can say this like same thing in a number of different ways. Um, it all equates to the same thing, which is that the Bitcoin is succeeding like as a monetary system by getting people to join it. And that if you were actually like to, you know, if you were as a participant between the two systems, if there's one obvious choice, then you will continue to make it, right? That's that's kind of the, if anybody hasn't read Speculative Attack, like Pierre Richard's uh, uh, article, it's very good. Timeless piece, timeless piece. Yeah, and it so kind of gets into I, some of those. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, the Michael Saylors of the world, when he initially announced his first purchase in August, that signaled to me that we're transitioning from the slow bleed to the full-on currency crisis. Um, well, and I think I would offer this like, last note to uh, like people uh, is that, um, you know, <laughs> I, I think we're going to be surprised by how quickly the system becomes adversarial against us. Uh, you know, we, in some ways, I think we will look back and we will find that we had it easy, right? Like we, we all got to like laugh and joke about like how well Bitcoin is doing. At some point, like, it, it, like if Bitcoin is as successful as the system, um, you know, and you saw this with the Stable Act, right? Like where they might, they're, they're, you know, you know, there's concerted attempts to try to outlaw node ownership on some uh, idea that it, the current law, like, you know, makes that um, plausible. I mean, if you, if you think you've seen a tax from the state, like in Bitcoin, I mean, we have not. Um, and it's likely that those will be exceptionally painful. Um, I wrote a tweet that I didn't send the other the other day where it was like, shout out to Bitcoin Anons, like, because <laughs> like the Bitcoin Anons have like largely hated me, I think, for the years, mostly because of my work at Coindesk and other things. So I think I'm finally making some some inroads there. But like, you know, uh, I wonder now if like anyone other than Bitcoin Anons is taking Bitcoin seriously enough. You know, I, I don't think I, I think that when shit really comes like the people who like, chose to be anonymous in 2011 and 2012, like you had to really know what was coming. And I don't like, look, I, I think it's going to be 
going to be a thing. It's going to be hard for you to be a Bitcoiner amongst your friends and family. They're going to try to turn those people against you. Like, dude, you're not even like, dude, we're not even there. <laughs> right. All right. Well, I go back and forth. I mean, obviously I have right about Bitcoin at this podcast. I got my face out there. I work. Well, all right. So for, I, well, can I, if I want to end on one note, like actually, uh, so Johnny, um, was that Johnny from Blockstream? What's his name? Um, this is killing me because I, I love just, Johnny. Um, Dilly, Johnny Dilly. Yeah, Johnny Dilly, yeah. Uh, two questions he asked me, like, were very formative of him becoming a Bitcoiner. And I be, I think I became a Bitcoiner partly because no one else has asked me them. He's like, he's like, one, he's like, think about your decisions based on whether you are a good steward of Bitcoin or not. That was like number one. Are you a good steward of Bitcoin? Are you a good steward? And the second one is, would you die for Bitcoin? Which is like, I don't know. I was asked that when I was like, you know, 20, 27 year old like reporter, like writing on this thing. I was like, oh, I don't think I would die for Bitcoin. But like, you know, we have, like somebody has to. Uh, Cause that's what, anyway, that's what it is, right? Like, so anyway, I asked those two questions cause I find myself thinking more and more about them. I think I've, I've chosen, like I, I've chosen to reorient my life in a way that would make me a better steward of Bitcoin. The second question of like, would you die for Bitcoin? Um, no question. You know. Yes, I would rather not but i think i would well again i mean look uh there are going back to history just bring it all super full circle i mean you know it's it's not going to be us sipping pineapple coladas you know <laughs> like when this stuff happens right um we i think we i think if there is something that we can do now it's probably to be mentally prepared right for um for what might happen and, and look I, I could be wrong like like it could all go very easily and you know the traditional financial system could just fall away to the economic superiority of bitcoin which is this alternative system that they don't control and then they have no <laughs> you know could all it could all be so simple um but life doesn't uh, usually yeah. work out that way mm -hmm. life doesn't usually work out that way or at least these big tectonic shit we'll see i mean look it, it may be the bitcoin incentives are so strong that like uh it, it you know the, there is no attack on it and everybody just capitulates right um it's plausible yeah. i don't look again i don't i think that bitcoin is we're, i think we're going to find over time that bitcoin is something that we have to protect um and that the level of protection that it requires from us is, is likely to be sufficiently larger than we could we can predict or we'd ever hope was needed but it is uh no, ask yourselves that, freaks. Would you die for Bitcoin? Is it that important <laughs> to you? Are you here for the tech? Are you here? Are you going to go down with the ship? That's the question, you know? All right. I think, I mean, I said, I mean, it's imperative. It is an imperative technology in today's day and age. Many people have come on this podcast and described that their lives before discovering Bitcoin were very pessimistic in Bitcoin is one of the sole reasons for optimism in the future um, to avoid the Orwellian dystopian hellscape that we seem to be barreling towards. Hopefully these people in charge are just too old and they fucking die and <laughs> don't have to fight them too much, too hard. Um, we'll see. The intelligence well, agencies like their power. Let's just hope where there's not some future kangaroo court where you're, that quote is like played back at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be out there, so... Um. Ah, yeah, prepare, prepare to die, freaks. I guess we'll end it on that. <laughs> Sufficiently positive. <laughs> um, Pete, where can we? Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. Almost two hours. Where can we? What can we expect from you next? I know we can go to Bitcoin Magazine to find your your latest article. 
Yeah, I'm um, look, I'm 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 really dedicated to like working in this area. Um, I'm surfacing this article because I'd like to do more of it. Um, I, I'm serious about trying to preserve some of this the history and and the diversity of the Bitcoin history, right? The kind of um, lovely cornucopia of ideologies and competing visions that that have. Um, surfaced around it um so yeah anybody who would like to talk to me about that you can get in touch with me on twitter or you can email me it's uh, at pete rizzo writes uh, at gmail.com uh, or pete at bitcoin magazine.com so yeah i mean look at anyone who wants to have a conversation about uh, the past of bitcoin love to chat pete thank you for your time thank you for the article again if you freaks haven't read it yet go read it how the uh scrolling up to the um, title the battle for p2sh the untold story of the first bitcoin war Go read it. Follow Pete on Twitter. We'll link to all this in the show notes. Peace and love. Okay.